You are back with the conversation on Hawaii Public Radio. This is Catherine Cruz. Food establishments have been welcoming back diners for about a month now, and customer complaints have now triggered the state health department to step up inspections statewide. Uh, last month, we reached out to Peter Oshiro, the program manager for the food sanitation branch, about the guidelines. At the time, the recommendations didn't allow for enforcement per se, but increased complaints forced DOH to look for ways to crack down using its existing placard system. We were getting a lot of calls from the community as far as complaints about certain establishments not following, uh, masking up everybody, and also not practicing social distancing and maybe packing the places in too much. So right now, just prior to our proposal to use the placards to help us enforce, we were just using a guidance. So if there was a problem, we would go out and talk to the food establishment, but it really had no legal enforcement teeth behind it. So we feel that we just needed to change it a bit. So we're using our existing placard system, and we're not using all three cards. All it is is we're going to be issuing a red placard, or we're going to close people down if they are not able to follow social distancing or um, having all their own employees masking up. And it's not going to be a just close everybody down kind of thing. We're going to give everybody a warning. So we're going to issue a warning and a written letter clearly explaining what the problem we saw was in your facility. And on a second violation, um, if you still do not correct it, at that point we'll issue a red placard which effectively closes your establishment. And you have not had to do that at this point? No, we have not even um, had to do a first warning yet, but we are getting anywhere from like two to five complaints a day. So what our staff has to do, they must verify it. They are not kind of just take the complainant's word for it. So when we receive all complaints, we try to respond within one to two days, and we'll go out and verify whether there's a problem or not. And what's the biggest challenge for the Department of Health at this point with the guidelines and the rules? I guess the biggest challenge is, um, you know, since the beginning of this, the rules have changed multiple times. We've gone through different phases, and it seems that not only our regulators, but some in the industry are kind of confused, rightly so, as to exactly what the existing law is. Um, the mayor might come out with a proclamation, and then the Department of Health comes out with a guidance, and sometimes it's not really clear as to which one is the force of law and which agency is actually going to go out and enforce this. Yeah, so when the city made these proclamations, I don't think they envisioned their police officers going out and enforcing masking up and social distancing at restaurants, yet that's basically what the mayor's proclamation does. And um, so the health department had to step in as far as figuring out a way to physically enforce this and because we didn't expect HPD to be go out, going out and doing it. So somebody's got to do it, and the obvious choice was our food safety inspectors that do the routine inspections of all these restaurants and bars anyway, that they would be the best equipped to go and enforce these um, social distancing and masking up rules. Yeah. So while the governor has issued his orders, the mayors of the various counties have their own ideas about how this all works, right? Right. So that's why it's hard, too, because each of the um, neighbor islands, Kauai, Maui, and the Big Island, each have their own district health offices, and they are greatly influenced by their own county mayors also. So I do not control, I guess, the day-to-day -day operations on each of the neighbor islands. That's controlled by the district health offices, and they each have their own food safety inspectional staff on the islands to do these things. So everybody's doing the same thing, but I'm hoping that... Um, everybody's getting the same interpretation of the rule. So we try to make sure that statewide, I call all my colleagues on the neighbor islands saying, this is what we're doing on Oahu, um, and based on our mayor's edicts and our governor's proclamation. Yeah. Because there are certain differences, like with times, right, and other kind of nuances, I guess, that, right. that are different. And that's, I'm not real familiar with them, too, right, because early on, Kauai even had curfews and things, right, so that's... It's something that each county has to be very well aware of locally. Yeah. And the idea always for us is to talk to the regulators. Yeah, We're not out there to close people down. Um, our focus has always been to try and educate first. So we enforce through education. We need to convince the food establishments why they need to do the right thing and what's the ramifications if they do not. Yeah. And so kind of walk us through county by county. Like, How many inspectors do you have? How is that broken out? 
Yeah, typically we base the position counts on a roughly 200 food establishments um, for every inspector. So right now, Kauai has three full-time inspectors. They have around six to 700 food establishments out there. On Maui, they have eight full-time positions. They also have about 16 to 1,700 food establishments. And Big Island, surprisingly, has pretty much the same count. So they have eight full-time inspectors. Big Island is different where they have an office in Kona and an office in Hilo. So they have four full-time inspectors in each of the offices. And they, um, island-wide, Big Island also has about 1,600 to 1,700 um, food establishments. The bulk over here on Oahu, we have over 6,000 establishments. So I have 25 people in the field right now, so we're short a little bit, right? We're short about six or seven positions, which we should be getting pretty soon. Now, one thing that uh, I was hearing from somebody was concerned about takeout. And mm-hmm. they were saying, oh, we went to the restaurant and we saw that the cook wasn't wearing a mask. Are they supposed to wear masks? Yeah, that's one of the um, confusing issues that came out because initially the mayor's proclamation stated that everybody had to wear a mask except back of the house, which means cooks, um, were exempt. And, you know, we all heard that even McDonald's after that, um, we were getting problems where employees, line employees come in or managers and infect other employees. So, again, the Department of Health is following the CDC guidance, which basically states that everybody in the food establishment must wear masks if you're around any other people, not just your front-facing customers. So that was the kind of a confusion where um, initially only front-facing customers were being required to mask up, and now we're asking all employees to mask up to protect each other, yeah, to protect other employees also. And so if, if you're the cook, is it enough just to be wearing a face shield? Yeah, it is. For us on Oahu, we're, you know, if you can't wear that mask, um, cloth mask or paper mask, and you know, we have to be cognizant about safety issues too. If the kitchen has open flames, um, then they may have to watch, right, as far as these paper masks and cloth masks, as far as um, causing a safety hazard. So in those cases, you know, if they're reticent about wearing those, then yeah, we would strongly encourage them to use face shields instead of the mask. But if uh, any of our listeners out there have any concerns about any of these uh, restaurants, these uh, eating establishments, they should contact a division on their island. Yes. On Oahu, call 586-8000. Okay. And then as far as uh, penalties? Yeah. So right now, the penalty is that on the first offense, we're going to issue them a formal letter stating exactly what we observed. And what the letter states that a second violation may result in the closure of their food establishment to protect public health, and we'll do that via a red placard. So again, all food establishments will get ample warning before we um, post the red placard and close them down. Yeah. No monetary fines? No, no monetary fines right now, just the threat of closure. And again, again, we don't need to make money off of this. The whole thing is to protect public health. And if the food establishment is not complying, the closing of the food establishment is what's protecting public health. And how long are they shut down for if you get a red card? The minimum is going to be 24 hours. So they can't call us an hour later to come back and follow up and say, yeah, we've corrected it now. This would be already two violations, and there would be willful violations. So we're going to keep them down for at least 24 hours before we follow up. But really, you just want compliance to keep yeah, everybody Yeah, that's safe. all we want, compliance. Yeah, we're not interested in closing people down and fining people. People have to really realize that, you know, we've only been a few months into this. Our parents and our grandparents had to endure years of hardship during our world wars. I mean, we can put on masks for a few months. I mean, really, that's all it takes, that and social distancing. And I can't believe why society is having such a problem with this. But that's all it will take to knock down this virus, and we can all go return back to normal or some semblance of it. Yeah. You know, if we do have to close anybody and issue a red placard, our standard operating procedure is to do a press release. So we will continue that. That was Peter Oshiro, Program Director of the Food Sanitation Branch of the Health Department, talking about COVID mandates to keep restaurant patrons and staff safe during this pandemic. And now it's time for the latest COVID-19 news from the BBC. A major U.S. pharmaceutical company begins the final phases of testing for a COVID-19 vaccine. And Bangladeshi authorities crack down on a scam involving fake test results for COVID screenings. This is the Coronavirus Global Update on Wednesday, the 15th of July. Hello, I'm Valerie Sanderson. A U.S. pharmaceutical company enters the final phase of testing for its vaccine. Allegations of fake COVID-19 certificates being used in Bangladesh and how to stop your glasses from fogging up when wearing a mask. 
A coronavirus vaccine developed by the U.S. pharmaceutical company Moderna has proved safe and provoked immune responses in all 45 volunteers in phase one trials, according to a paper published in the New England Journal of Medicine. None experienced a serious side effect, though most reported mild or moderate reactions after being inoculated. Moderna was the first company to start human testing of a vaccine back in March. The last stage trials are scheduled to run until October, with researchers expecting preliminary results well before then. The leading U.S. infectious diseases expert, Dr. Anthony Fauci, expects daily deaths from the coronavirus outbreak in America to rise again, but not to the levels seen during the first phase of the pandemic. He attributed this to the lower age of those infected. If you look at the age range of the individuals who are getting infected now, it's about a decade to a decade and a half younger. So even if young people, which some do, get sick enough to get hospitalized, it is highly unlikely that the death rate among them are going to be at the level of the death rate of what we saw in the real core of the explosion that we saw in the northeastern part of the country. The United Nations says the coronavirus pandemic has led to a reduction in the number of children being vaccinated this year. In the first four months of 2020, there was what the UN called a substantial drop in completing immunisation against diphtheria, tetanus and whooping cough, the first decline in almost 30 years. The head of the World Health Organization said the avoidable suffering and death caused by children missing out on routine immunisation could be far greater than COVID-19 itself. A BBC investigation has revealed chronic failures in the health system in South Africa's eastern Cape province, where key staff are on strike or sick with COVID-19. Dr John Black works at Livingston Hospital in Port Elizabeth, the main hospital treating COVID patients in the eastern Cape. It's down about 30% of staff at any given day. There are reports of patients fighting for oxygen, limited bed capacity, limited staff. So what ends up is the group of willing people who are having to go the extra mile. So whether that's the surgeons and the nurses cleaning the theatres or the doctors portering or people taking laundry to go and get washed. People feel a moral responsibility, but at the same time there's a huge amount of fear. And when you've got shortages of PPE, to ask people to make those sacrifices is, is, is quite a big thing. A spokesperson for the Eastern Cape Health Department says they're advertising for more doctors and fast-tracking the appointment of nurses. Police in Bangladesh have arrested the owner of a hospital in the capital, Dhaka, following allegations the facility had issued thousands of fake coronavirus certificates. Officials said the man was caught trying to flee to India, disguised in a burqa. A number of other hospitals are also being investigated. Several countries have restricted flights from Bangladesh after a number of people travelling from the country tested positive for COVID-19, despite having a negative certificate. The pandemic could be having one unexpected health benefit, helping smokers to quit the habit. A survey here in Britain suggests that more than a million people have stopped smoking since the outbreak began. Here's Rachel Schreer. The charity Action on Smoking and Health asked a representative sample of 10,000 people about their smoking habits. Of the 200 who said they'd given up between April and June this year, almost half put their decision directly down to the pandemic, whether that's because of health concerns, financial constraints or changes to their social life. Scaled up, this represents more than a million people stopping smoking across the UK. More and more of us are being encouraged to wear face masks to reduce the spread of COVID-19. But if you wear glasses, how do you stop your specs from fogging up when wearing a face covering? Jonathan Savage has found an answer. The solution with the most credence I've seen in my search actually comes from the medical journal Annals of the Royal College of Surgeons of England, who of course wear masks in their job. It recommended wetting your lenses, rubbing some soap on them, then rinsing in warm water before drying with a soft towel. Now that should leave a soapy film on your lenses, which reduces the surface tension. That means the water molecules in your breath distribute more evenly and they don't cluster in this cloud of condensation. As a specs weary myself, that's good to know. Stay safe. This is the Coronavirus Global Update.
This is The Conversation on statewide member-supported Hawaii Public Radio. Time now for your Bike Guard Quiz. Hawaii is home to some of the most beautiful vegetation in the world, including our state flower, the yellow hibiscus. But there are a vast number of trees that fill our landscape, and one in particular often captures attention during its blooming season. After the tree has dropped its leaves, showy flowers grow in long, hanging clusters. They range in color from white to creamy yellow to pink and coral. Considering that this tree can grow 40 feet high with a spread up to 35 feet, the visual effect is often breathtaking. During dry periods, its deep root system allows the tree to find water, making it perfect for all areas of Hawaii's landscape. This tree also has a practical application due to its extensive leaf and flower canopy. It naturally prevents stormwater runoff. In recognition of this indigenous tree's beautiful and environmental contributions, it was named the official tree of Honolulu in 1965. For today's quiz, can you name it? 941-3689 is the number to call or 877-941-3689. If you know the answer, the first one to get it right gets a reusable tote bag that tells people you got it right. Support for the Backyard Quiz comes from Locations, whose Realtors and staff support HPR's commitment to sharing stories of Hawaii. Updated property listings, including virtual tours and a mobile app, at locationshawaii.com. We are moving into high gear as the primary election approaches. More candidates sign-waving on the streets and more campaign literature and broadcast ads circulating. On the long view today, our political analyst, Neil Milner, joins us to talk about the pathology of elections. Good morning, Neil. Hi. You know, when I think of pathology, I think of disease. Are you saying our elections are sick or ailing? Well, I didn't pick the metaphor, but I think it's a pretty good one. This is a piece that's going to be coming out in the Journal of Election Law by a man named Robert Hassan, Richard Hassan, who's a uh, election law specialist. Uh, he's at the University of California, Irvine. And he says, if you look at what the pandemic is doing to the possibility of elections, you see that what we really have in this country is, in our voting system, three pathologies. That is, three things that are basically wrong. And the first one is that... The um, elections are not really administered at a national level at all. Congress has a few things to say about elections. The Constitution has a couple of things to say about setting the date. But essentially, elections are administered and uh, and decisions are made by approximately 10,000 jurisdictions in the country. So if you have a national pandemic that crosses all of those jurisdictions, you don't have one kind of decision. So the first problem is that uh, where you live can very much determine the obstacles that you're going to face legally, politically, in order to vote. The second one is, and it really feeds into the first one, the second one is that the, the right to vote, who gets to vote, who doesn't, how do you administer elections, what can you change and what can't you change because of the pandemic has become totally polarized and politicized. So that what you have essentially is this. You have Republicans who really want to worry about suppressing the vote and, in fact, make an argument without evidence that the president does this, that mail ballots have, um, uh, uh, are, are fraudulent, that they have the opportunity for fraud. There's no evidence of that. Democrats are much more willing to open up the franchise. But, and, and the courts have taken very different opinions on this. But within all of this, that is, you're throwing it to the courts to make a decision. The courts are polarized like everybody else. The U.S. Supreme Court just made the first really national decision about what you can do 
to adjust your election uh, procedures uh, late on because of the pandemic uh, virus. They ruled against Wisconsin being able to do the things that it wanted to do. And the opinion, the majority of opinion, never even mentions the pandemic. It's as if things just go on. The dissent said, hey, there's a pandemic here. You've got to open it up. So that's really the, the, uh, the second thing. And related to that is that the standards that courts use to decide uh, in favor of a voter or against a voter are pretty vague and get used in different ways. The third thing, and this is really fundamental, and it may surprise some people, the Constitution's protection of voting is very weak. There is not in the Constitution, the U.S. Constitution, any affirmative statement of the right to vote. You have statements that uh, prohibit certain limitations on the right to use the due process clause. So you have a constitutional system that is pretty weak, that doesn't really do very much, that sets no, that doesn't really set national standards that are very helpful in this situation. And so you're sort of out there with, with not very many protections. What that means is that, and what what uh, Professor Assen uh, says is the thing that haunted him in the first place, and that is the pictures on April 7th of a lot of African Americans in Wisconsin standing in line with masks on and heavy winter clothes, because early April in Wisconsin it's still pretty cold, standing in line to vote. Now, we know a couple of things about that. One, a fairly trivial one, it was my high school that they show the pictures of nationally, the one I went to many years ago. Wow. Yeah, I know. The second thing is that it, um, there were some coronavirus cases from that. That case, that whole situation was about the Republicans fighting the governor's attempt to change the vote. So we haven't even talked about how you administer mail-in ballot, which we might want to do now. But those are the fundamental, that's the fundamental context. Notice nothing about Russian interference, nothing about those kind of more spectacular things that can happen. This is everyday voting administration life. Well, and it is scary, you know, with the threat of, of COVID these days affecting, you know, what happens at the polls, because a lot of our poll volunteers are seniors and more susceptible. And, and yep. here in Hawaii, we you know decided, what, a year or more ago that we were going to do mail-in ballots and lots of discussion around you know whether uh, we're ready for that and and whether we've done our homework well we're fortunate in one way um it may be it's luck it's also a decision made over time that we made this decision to have mail-in ballots relatively early before the pandemic so that there was a head start on getting the things ready for uh, getting the, the elections ready for that you have in other states for example some states you have to get permission to vote absentee. There are very few states that have all, all mail-in ballots, I think five. Some states don't even let you vote absentee unless you get permission. So there's all kinds of stuff going on about trying to change things at the last minute with a lot of political resistance. Here we have the system at least initially in place. How it's going to work, we don't know. Remember, you can't vote uh, you, you really have to vote by mail. There's you know, a couple of exceptions. Um, how likely it is to, to work depends on a number of things, one of which it depends on how effective the pan- how, how much the pandemic affects people's even interest to vote. But putting that aside, it affects the likelihood of people voting for other reasons. What makes mail-in ballots work is an educational process, especially the first time, that explains them to people and tells them what to do. There have been some critics of how much the Office of Elections has done in that regard. We'll see. But at least we don't have this last-minute attempt, I mean literally last-minute in some of the primaries in other states, to adopt a absentee ballot system, because most people have been voting, and not most, a substantial number of people have been voting absentee here before, so they know what to do. Um, and, it, and so that at least is taken care of. But the rest of it is you're still trying a new process with uh, an election bureaucracy that has not really done this before. And you have to rely on things like people understanding postmarks and when you have to get the the ballot in in order for it to be counted. 
Right. And the State Office of Elections is, you know, starting its campaign this week to kind of educate voters uh, as to how to do it right and get it in so it can be counted. That's right. Now, again, you know, I, th- there's a whole kind of literature on how you influence people. I'm really not in a position to judge how well they're doing. But you're starting to see stuff coming out right now. Now, you've got to remember one other thing I think that it's important. The mail, the people who, who say that mail-in ballots increase turnout under normal circumstances, there are two counters to that, one of which is that it doesn't increase turnout uh, too much. Uh, the other is that there are other reasons that, that the assumption is that mail-in balloting is easier than voting in, in, in person. Uh, there are two things about that assumption. Maybe it is and maybe it isn't, not if you're unfamiliar with mail-in. The other thing is there are lots of reasons why people don't vote, which have nothing to do with the obstacles they face. They're not interested. Uh, they don't think it pays. They don't think it's, it's of any use. But the fundamental thing is we're trying a new system. The new system is at least in place. It's not something they had to drop and create an emergency and get the courts involved. We'll see how it works. Okay. All right. Well, thanks so much, Neil. Sure. Take care. That was Neil Milner, retired professor of political science and our contributing editor of our segment, The Long View. Support for Hawaii Public Radio comes from the Scheidler College of Business at UH Manoa, offering the executive MBA, scheidler.hawaii.edu. Even when your days shift and change, some things don't, like HPR keeping you informed with news you can trust and providing an oasis of music when you need it. So stick with your routine and stay connected at home. Listen to HPR on air, online, or on your smart speaker. Whether you're working in your street clothes or in your pajamas, HPR is here for you. Just ask your smart speaker to play Hawaii Public Radio. Complaints of sex abuse within the Honolulu Police Department. That's the subject of today's reality check. Honolulu Civil Beat columnist Denby Fawcett has the story today. Good morning. So I'm just curious, how did you get wind of this dirty little secret? Well, I got wind of it from a friend of a police officer. and She was not a police officer herself. The friend who heard about it from uh, this female police officer heard her friend had been um, t- threatened by another police officer holding a gun toward her and also physically abusing her. So she was appalled and said that I should look into it. So I started looking. And so what would you find? Well, I found out that um, there were currently pending, there had been four complaints of sexual abuse by officers, male officers to female officers in last year alone. And I found out, uh, interestingly, that the three of the complaints, four actually, were against um, officers in the training academy that, from recruits who had been under the supervision of these officers. So that's not only a sexual abuse complaint, but also, um, you know, workplace. A superior officer should never hold his power over someone below him or her in any workplace, never mind the police department, in any any professional setting. So I thought this was especially um, interesting and worrisome. Worrisome, yes, because, you know, the police chief has talked about trying to get more women into the police force. Yes. Right now, there are only uh, 12 percent of the police force is female. That's about 220 officers out of 2,000-something officers. So um, when you're not assuring female uh, recruits of a safe workplace, it's not a good thing. And the same would go from any kind of recruit, male or female, in the training academy. You need to know that you're going to be treated fairly and not have to worry when you're coming um, to classes every day because the instructors hold a lot of power over you. They can decide whether or not you get written up and whether or not you graduate from the academy. So did anyone flag this to the police commission? Um, well, a police commission, I spoke with Loretta Sheehan, who is a former, was the former head of the police commission, and uh, she has since resigned, uh, she says, out of frustration because the commission has such limited power to affect any change. 
But she said no. They the police chief had never told them about you know this particular problem. They knew about uh, domestic abuse, police officers' abuse toward their girlfriends and wives, but she said they did not know about this at all. And so these cases are just, what, moving through the process? Well, they're moving very slowly. One, it has a court um, court appearance next month, so that's coming up fast. The other two, uh, the t- there are two women who filed against the same instructor, and those cases are now stalled in an administrative review, and they've been stalled there for more than a year. And so what does the chief say? Well, the chief, the answer to the, them being stalled is uh, some cases take only two or three weeks and some take longer. And then the chief does not comment on particular cases. So HPD, I was surprised. They gave me the numbers of complaints uh, in the last five years. I asked for that, the number of complaints of sexual abuse from female officers against their male colleagues. And uh, they did send me the numbers, but that's about all they do. There are no details or um, but I was happy to get that because it showed it, it is a problem. Right. So it sounds like they have to do some house cleaning. Well, thanks so much, Denby. You're welcome, Catherine. That was Honolulu Civil Beat's Denby Fawcett with today's reality check. Uh, to read her story today, visit civilbeat.org. has a brain drain problem. High costs of living and competitive job markets have long been luring locals away from their island home for greener pastures elsewhere. But how do we reverse the brain drain trend? Well, according to the Center for today, uh, Tomorrow's Leaders, the answer lies in empowering young people in the community with a sense of responsibility to their community. India Ching and Olivia Stetzer are two of the program's young leaders. For Ching, that means working with the Salvation Army to provide assistance to families hard hit by the COVID-19 crisis. While Stetzer has become involved with economic recovery within the state, including a collaboration with Alan Oshima's Economic Recovery and Navigator Group. They spoke with the conversation's Harrison Patino about creating a sustainable future for Hawaii's coming generations. We start with India. A lot of people are taking issues more seriously nowadays. I feel like a lot are making the issue bigger than what it has been in the past. And I think we're just facing a lot of challenges, especially after this pandemic. So I think we're just facing a lot of challenges during the time. As India mentioned, I feel that young people are really starting to get engaged in the past couple of months. I'd say that that hasn't really been the case for at least growing up, where um, especially in Hawaii, there's definitely a lack of civic disengagement, uh, which definitely hasn't been helpful in making decisions that really have an effect for the future. So Indy and I, as we're working on um, COVID resiliency projects, we're both seeing the effect of the pandemic and the effect of decisions that have been made long ago that are really going to be detrimental to our future. Now, you're both currently enrolled in the Center for Tomorrow's Leaders Summer in Hawaii program. And the idea behind that program is that it looks to remedy the impacts of COVID-19 now locally. At least that's what I understand. Now, what kind of solutions are both of you guys proposing to the challenges that we face under this pandemic? So through my internship, I'm working at the Hawaii Institute of Public Affairs on economic resiliency. So that organization as a whole is working with Governor David Ige, different public policy proposals. And my partner and I, we're currently looking at the ways that youth can really get more involved, both in talking about these public policy ideas and in the future. So that's really what we're trying to do, find ways to get youth more involved and propose that to the board to be put into practice later on. So for my internship under CTL, I am working under the Salvation Army. And what I am doing is 
frontline social work. So basically my task is assisting clients with financial help that has been greatly affected by the pandemic. Now, as both of you are quite aware, I'm sure, Hawaii has a bit of a brain drain problem, this idea of young talent, young entrepreneurs leaving Hawaii for better pastures. When did you guys start to become aware of that problem, and what made you want to do something about it? I think I maybe became aware about this situation maybe in high school. I think because we are all applying to colleges, a lot of my friends are like, oh, yeah, I'm going to go to the mainland because I think it'll be better there instead of Hawaii. And for me, I felt like I, I wanted to stay in Hawaii because Hawaii is such a special place to me. I think the way I've taken part in that, in helping to make my friends more aware or anyone more aware of just staying in Hawaii and trying to lead, is that my, my myself has been a part of Center for Tomorrow's Leaders and my peers and family, they're all, they're all aware of this program and they're more knowledgeable about how important it is that it is possible to stay here in Hawaii despite all the challenges that it may that may happen. And it is possible to lead, especially when there may be big challenges that come up in the future. The brain drain is something like we've seen all of our lives, but it, you don't really talk about it and you see it as something normal just living in Hawaii, especially as someone who, who's gone away to college on the mainland, also kind of seeking like more opportunities um, and like a different lifestyle. I think I definitely appreciate just the community and the people here even more. That being said, I, I also better understand how challenging it can be to come back, find a career and be financially successful and stable. So I think especially for young people, it can be so, so, so hard to make a decision so big as deciding whether to come home and may not be, you might not be able to financially support yourself or staying on the mainland. So I think many things have to be done and there are so many different solutions you could put to this problem. So I'm excited to see what happens in the future. That brings up this idea of balancing competing interests, that you might want to have a higher salary or something that you might not be able to achieve in Hawaii, but you still want to make that difference. I grew up here having a hard time living here, especially with the extent of housing. And from my sense, I'm, I don't really know a lot about economics, but I do know that where I stand is that I, I think I'm going to continue to live here, even though you know it may be like this. I'm going to continue to educate myself more. Somehow I want to be able to spread more awareness about what we can do better. And I will try to spread awareness by teaching myself more about what is happening in Hawaii now and how we can do better and inform my, my peers and my family more about what is happening. I think ultimately, if you are a young person that, that wants to move back, especially right now, you're going to have to sacrifice some things and make some choices, which is, isn't fair, but that's frankly reality. However, I'd say that young people are also at this crossroads where they have so much power to really share what they want for the world, a more socially equitable, equitable place that values everyone, and that especially in Hawaii, a place really a paradise that it shouldn't just be a place for those who are rich. It should be a place for everyone. Everyone should have a voice. And there are so many solutions that must be funded, but those solutions are there and frankly just need to be put into place. Now, one of the interesting goals of this program is posing the question of examining what it means to be local. Now, what does that mean to you in your own words? I definitely have, have thought about that a lot um, throughout this program. I'd say I consider myself a townie. Uh, born and raised in Honolulu, and I don't think I leave it much. But I'd say more so what it means to be local is to care about your community and to want better. And I'd say all of us in the program, if that's the definition we're going by, definitely are local. Now, India, where do you think the idea of examining what it means to be local fits into creating a sustainable future for Hawaii's future generations? This question was actually posed in my Hawaiian 100 class last semester. And it was actually something that we were having a difficult time coming up with an actual definition for it. My perspective of being a local is, is what Olivia said, caring about the community, especially if you're going to be for Hawaii's community. And I think being a local, you're going to want to 
you know, be a true leader. You don't have to be an actual leader, but as long as you have goals towards making Hawaii a better place and just a better place to live in, a better place for the entire community and, and for future generations to come as well. There's no such thing as a perfect world or a perfect future, but I'm hoping that the leaders of today will be able to conquer any problem that may occur in the future. And Center for Tomorrow's Leaders is teaching us so much about our community right now and how to develop solutions or solve problems for our greater good. And I'm hoping that we as young leaders will be able to step up to the challenges that we face now and as well as being able to look out for issues that may come up in future generations. And finally, I hope that we'll be able to spread more awareness in Hawaii's community so that they're knowledgeable and aware of social, political, economic, and environmental issues that may come up. I think I'll always call Hawaii home. And as for my, my hopes and dreams for Hawaii, I think just just the place where, where everyone has the right to call it a home. Um, and also a place, I think, where we are very sustainable, um, conscious of the people who live here, and conscious of the impact our state and, and um, environment has. And just I think we really can be the example for the rest of the world on what it means to show to show empathy and kindness. That was India Ching and Olivia Stetzer of the Center for Tomorrow's Leaders talking with the Conversations producer Harrison Patino about sustainability and community responsibility for Hawaii's upcoming generations. Support for Hawaii Public Radio comes from the Honolulu Museum of Art, reopening July 16th and welcoming the community to reconnect with the art and museum spaces on Pauhana Friday evenings through September. HonoluluMuseum.org. Tune in to HBR One Saturday night for the next Hawaii Public Radio presents Blue Note Virtually Live. This week it's Ukulele Virtuoso Taimani performing her first full production concert since January. Backed by a revamped quartet, Taimani will showcase new songs and a fresh sound right here on HPR. And we'll hear an interview with Taimani as well. That's Saturday at 6 p.m. Tune in to HPR One or listen on the HPR mobile app. Earlier in the program, we asked you to name the official tree of Honolulu. Under former Mayor Neil S. Blaisdell, Honolulu adopted this tree as its official tree in 1965. The Bloomin' Rainbow Shower Tree is a hybrid between the pink, white, and gold shower trees. The flowering colors of its parent trees allow keiki to produce a beautiful mixture of orange, red, cream, and yellow flowers. From April to November, the flowers of the rainbow shower blankets the Honolulu landscape, particularly in Kapi'olani Park, McKinley High School, along Kalaniani'ole Highway, and the H1 Freeway near Moanalua. The shower tree makes an excellent accent for home gardens with moderately rapid growth and excellent drought tolerance. But you gotta like the falling petals because they wind up everywhere, and I do. And uh, congratulations to Wayne Gao of Honolulu. You got it right. That's today's quiz. step back in the time machine and linger in Kona Town around the time of the pandemic of 1918. HBR's Ku'uve Hiroishi joins us this morning. 
Good morning, Catherine. I love going back in time, don't you? Yes. So this a story actually began months ago at the start of the coronavirus pandemic. The Kona Historical Society um, was trying to make that pivot to figure out how do we serve our community under these new CDC guidelines and stay-at-home rules. So Dan Saoki, executive director of the, of the society, uh, said, you know, we wanted to make sure that we could stay active as a cultural resource because people need stories. And the inspiration uh, for this undertaking came from Kona historian Miley Melrose. So she is uh, the great-granddaughter of the Henry Nicholas Greenwell, one of the well-known, sort of the patriarch of the well-known Greenwell Ohana in Kona. And uh, she shared a very personal story for her Ohana of the 1918 flu pandemic. So this is... Uh, the deadliest pandemic in recent history. More than 50 million people worldwide died, including uh, several thousand here in Hawaii. So it hit really close to home and one even in Melrose's family. And so uh, Melrose was not yet born in, in 1918, uh, but she had heard these stories throughout her uh from her mother, from her grandparents, and also from her siblings. It was sort of this tale that kept on being told throughout the generations. Um, and so when the coronavirus, she didn't really think about it. She heard about the Spanish flu and the, and the uh, 1918 flu pandemic, uh, but she hadn't really connected the dots until the coronavirus pandemic actually became a reality. Uh, Melrose began to draw parallels between the two pandemics, uh, which she noted actually happens around nearly a hundred years exactly apart. So here's Melrose taking us back to 1920. The pandemic has not finished running its course. It's been going for nearly two years. And you know people are thinking, is this ever going to end? Is it ever going to be normal? Because the people back in, in the Spanish flu epidemic, they did the same thing. They put on masks, the Red Cross galvanized, the ladies were out there with stretchers. They shut down movie theaters, they closed schools. Some people follow the rules, some people don't follow the rules. Some people are badly affected by the disease and others aren't, so they're gonna carry, their story is gonna be in 100 years that it wasn't that bad. You know, coronavirus, huh, that was nothing. And then for other people, it's gonna be coronavirus changed my life, my family's life, the whole world, and it is never going to be the same. For the Greenwells, uh, the case was the latter. Uh, Melrose's mother was the youngest of seven children at the time. She wasn't yet born, but her eldest brother uh, was 11 years old, Henry Allen Greenwell. He was 11 years old at the time uh, when the pandemic began. And Melrose remembers growing up hearing these stories of this uncle she never got to meet. They'd pass uh, his gravestone outside of uh, Christ Church in Kona every week. Wow. Right? Seeing the name, saying, okay, that's my uncle don't know much about him. He died, you know, when he was 11. Uh, and so for children growing up at the time, after she started to talk to her sisters about the current pandemic and reflecting back on the, the stories they've heard, uh, they actually got to, to go back and think about how they actually felt while children growing up, knowing that they might too experience a pandemic. Here's Melrose. He would have been my uncle. He would have been my uncle, Alan. As kids, we never, well, we didn't know would there ever be a Spanish, another sort of epidemic. And what's funny, you know, I talked to my sisters about this after I gave that talk, and my sister Amanda said she was always paralyzed with fear. She thought it was normal for children to die of, like a pandemic would come out of nowhere and get to you. So when she finally hit like 12 years old, she could look at the dates of his death, his life, and go, Whew, I made it. I'm not going to die of some horrible disease. It, it brings a smile to my face knowing that you see this 12-year-old going through that thought process, but it is a reality for children today Yes, uh, who are experiencing this and, you know, thinking about uh, how to live their life, I guess. And you had mentioned before this, Chris, that there was, uh, you had family tied to this yes pandemic. my brother uh at the start of this the start of the year had said hey did you know that uh, dad's dad died of <laughs> the flu back then and 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 i didn't know that so it makes me want to know more 
Right. And I think that's really uh, what happened with the Kona Historical Society was saying, you know, if this story is coming out of this one person, imagine all of the people um, in Kona going through this. And so um, going back to the 1918 flu pandemic, you know, for folks who might not have known the full history of it started in the United States on a military base in Kansas in March of 1918 at the height of World War One, and Melrose says most of Kona was focused on organizing support for the U.S. Uh, war effort and within four months the pandemic made its way to Hawaii. More than 2,300 people in Hawaii died. Uh, of the many lessons learned from uh, this family history, Melrose says the uncertainty of it all was really the big takeaway. It started in March, it got here in June of the same year, and that was the first wave. So it kind of goes June, July. You know, it's, it's not that bad. It's just this unknown. And I, I talked about they called it la grippe yeah. because they didn't know what to call it. And la grippe is like this French word, right? You know, the, they talk about la grippe, the griping pains, the fever. They didn't know what to call it, so they called it la grippe. It was here, and then it did. It faded away. And then it came back at Christmas time. And so the deaths on the mainland spiked early, 1918. It must have gone through and been really horrible. Deaths in Hawaii peaked in 1920. Okay, so it's like Hawaii saw the worst of it when a lot of the world was actually seeing the tail end of it. So you can't tell. You can't wow. tell, right? The, those words linger uh, with me. But uh, the Kona Historical Society is continuing to take in uh, stories from folks in Kona who are going through the COVID-19 pandemic and actually sharing those stories on their website or if you want on social media with the hashtag Kona Remembers COVID-19. Okay, and then the story that you did about a week or so ago, so that really was like the little uh, pebble uh, in the water. Exactly. I think things are going to continue. We're going to see more stories coming out. And if you have one that you'd like to share, please uh, contact them. All right. Okay. Well, thank you so much, Kuve. Mahalo. We have been talking with uh, HPR's Kuve Hirishi. You can find her interesting stories online at hawaiipublicradio.org. Well, we've got to go, but up tomorrow, it is a call-in show. We talk all things related to the 14-day quarantine. Got a question for the State Attorney General? Leave your feedback on our talkback line, 808-792-8217, or post your comments on Facebook or on HI Conversation. And, you know, email works too, talkback at hawaiipublicradio.org. You can find all of our shows archived online. Uh, check out our page, HPR News and Talk, for the conversation on hawaiipublicradio.org. I'm Catherine Cruz. Join us tomorrow, won't you, for more of the conversation.